if we as Christians are unsettled concerning the pre-trib rapture, let me back up, the sound doctrine of the pre-trib rapture, then we in effect give Satan a blank check to fill in the amount of doubt and fear in our lives. Because if I'm not sure, I'm uncertain, I'm not really convinced, I don't really believe, then that's a game changer. That changes everything. Now I'm not looking for Jesus Christ. I'm looking for the Antichrist. I'm facing a very serious life and death for all eternity decision about whether or not I'm going to accept the mark of the beast, which is already in play, and the technology already in play, and the Antichrist system already in play. It's already here. It's just a matter of time. Ron, let's clarify, please. There are believers in the tribulation. They're tribulation saints. And a lot of people read that. They read in Revelation 4 through 19. They read that. In fact, look at the references to the believers. Obviously, the believers have been left behind to go through the tribulation. Actually, those are people who come to faith during the tribulation, thanks to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the two witnesses, the angel, etc. Help us understand that. We know that there will be saints during the tribulation because Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats in Matthew mm-hmm. 25, 31 to 46 at the second coming. And the sheep are Christians. But these are not the same as the Christians who were raptured prior to the tribulation period. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists will share the gospel of the kingdom, and there's going to be many people who convert. Revelation 7 tells that there's going to be a great crowd of Christians. It's not just the 144,000, it's also the two prophets of Revelation 11. And they apparently have the same kinds of powers as Moses and Elijah. And those miracles they perform confirm their message about the true God and the true Messiah. Many people will become believers during the tribulation period, And therefore, the fact that there are believers in the tribulation does not disprove pre-tribulationism. When you look at Scripture, it's very clear that God has a special place in God's sovereign plan. The Jewish people are the apple of God's eye, Zechariah 2.8. Their land is described as holy, Zechariah 2.12. Their city is the center of the nations, Ezekiel 5.5. They are pictured as the wayward wife of God in Ezekiel 16. The scriptures do indicate that they are the objects of God's temporary discipline, but are also the objects of his grace, because God's grace will see to it that a remnant of Jewish people become believers in the Lord, which will take place at the end of the tribulation period. Jen, I have to tell you that one of the most magnificent manifestations of God's grace is his miraculous preservation of Israel for the past 2,700 years. Mm -hmm. After Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in A.D. 70, The Jews were dispersed to more than 130 nations around the world. They've been mistreated and relentlessly persecuted wherever they went. And yet, thousands of years later, their national existence and even their language have been fully restored in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The biblical prophet Ezekiel said that after a long and worldwide dispersion, Israel would become a nation again. This was fulfilled in 1948. Ezekiel then says that Jewish people from all over the world would then start to migrate back to Israel. That's been happening every single year since 1948, especially over the past decade due to anti-Semitism. And then scripture goes on to say 
that there's going to be a mighty Muslim coalition of nations that will one day attack Israel. That attack hasn't occurred yet, but the nations that make up that attack force have alliances with each other right now, and they have a strong motivation to attack. Jan, my point is this. God speaks a great deal about his plan for Israel, not to mention the fact that God has made unconditional covenants with Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, these covenants will one day be literally fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. I have a little saying I use now and then, how odd of God to choose the Jews, but not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God but spurn the Jews. How professing Christians can denounce the Jewish people when our Messiah was a Jew is beyond my comprehension, but they do. It never ceases to amaze me and disappoint me. I'm going to another bullet point here, Ron, and that would be there's nothing unusual about the Lord keeping the church out of the tribulation period because he has a history of protecting his people from tribulation on several occasions. He protected the Hebrew people from the 10 plagues. He protected Noah and his family from the flood, Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. He will seal and protect 144,000 during the tribulation period. He will protect the Jews in Judea that flee to the wilderness during the last half of the tribulation period. So there is no reason why we can't believe, I don't think it's a stretch to believe, that he will protect his church during that terrible time of hell on earth, the tribulation. That's right, and I would just add to that the fact that God has already paid for the sins of the church. At the cross, Jesus took it all. He took all the punishment that we deserve And he took it on the cross such that we can be declared absolutely righteous and sanctified, all because of Jesus. Now, why would you say that the church now needs to go through the tribulation period to experience God's wrath? It just doesn't make good sense. Now, in terms of the nations, it's very clear why they're there and why they're being judged. They have rejected God and rejected his Messiah, Jesus Christ. There's also a very good reason why the Jews are there. It's the 70th week of Daniel. Just as the first 69 weeks of Daniel dealt with the Jewish people, so the 70th week of Daniel will deal with the Jewish people. And it's during that time frame that the Jewish people will undergo great hardship in preparation for them converting to the Messiah at the end of the tribulation period. So God has a very good purpose in view for both the Jewish people and the nations in the tribulation, but not the church. Talking to Dr. Ron Rhodes for the hour. By the way, we're carrying three of his books, Basic Bible Prophecy, Spiritual Warfare in the End Times, and 40 Days Through Revelation. You can find those in my online store at olivetreeviews.org, olivetreeviews.org. You can call my office. You can get on our newsletter list, etc. Some would call us, Ron, escapists. Uh, We're longing for the great escape. Yet Jesus was talking about the tribulation period when he said, and this would be Luke 21, pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all the things that shall come to pass. He didn't say pray always that you may be accounted worthy to endure some or all of the things that shall come to pass. Rather, he said pray always that you're worthy to escape. So I guess I'm an escape artist then, but I'm just following the words of Jesus. I would also say this. Sometimes it's communicated by critics that the only reason why we believe why we believe is because we're afraid to go through the tribulation period. Jan, I want to tell you in no uncertain terms that that is not my motivation. My motivation is to be biblical. 
And I remind listeners, I take a literal approach to these New Testament prophecies about the rapture because all the other prophecies in the Bible were fulfilled literally. God has already set the precedent in terms of how to understand Bible prophecy. Now, it's been said that we're imposing our view on the text. That is absolutely not true. In fact, we are deriving our view from the text. Jan, how can you read 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which says that living Christians will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air? Am I imposing something on the text when I say we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air? Absolutely Absolutely. not. The text clearly says it. And by the way, the Latin translation of that verse where it says caught up is rapera. It's where we get the word rapture. So I would encourage people to read their Bibles a little bit more carefully because there's too many people who are falsely teaching that there is no rapture. I'm going to play one more clip, and that's Dr. Gary Fraser, and he's appearing here with Dave Reagan and Nathan Jones on Christ in Prophecy TV. But what would you say, Gary, then, is the strongest argument that supports the preacher rapture view? First of all, I want to tell you that, to me, it's very simplistic, and that is this. Again, I go back to Matthew 24. I'm not going to get in the weeds on these issues with people. I have people who come to me and they want to argue. I'm not going to argue about Uh this at all. What I'm going to simply say is this. As far as I'm concerned, Jesus gave a command. Matthew 24, watch for my coming. Again, Matthew 25, 11, Matthew 25, 13. These are about the, the parables of the wise and unwise virgins. Some were watching, some were not. Some were prepared, some were not. Bottom line is this. My responsibility is to get out of bed every day and realize that Christ might come today. And so I'm not watching for the Antichrist. I'm not looking for, as my friend Ed Hansen says, the undertaker. I'm looking for the upper taker. <laughs> and I'm not wasting my time trying to guess the time because nobody knows the time. And Jesus could come at any time, so I'm just going to be ready all the time. Amen. And the main Amen. reason for that is, and here's one of the things I think is so often overlooked. The Bible teaches that our lives are but a vapor. Here one moment, gone the next. The truth is not a single one of us know whether or not we will see the sun go down today, let alone the sun come up tomorrow. Therefore, as a result of that, our responsibility is to live every day in light of the fact that it may be our last day. So to want to argue over a pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib rapture really in many ways is a very foolish argument because the truth is we don't even know if we're going to be here for that event. (laughs) It could happen today, but so could our death. Yes. Because, again, our lives are but a vapor. Hebrews 9, 27, it's pointed a man wants to die. So we don't know. So I don't want to argue about this. What I'm going to say is, is that I'm going to get out of bed every day. I'm going to choose to walk with Christ today. I want to have a passion about this because when I believe that Christ may come today, I want to be a man of prayer. I want to be a man of personal holiness and godliness. And I want to share my faith actively because I will tell you that Jesus may come today. And if he doesn't come, there are people around me who may die. And so I want to make sure that they have the opportunity and they hear the gospel. That's the motivation we ought to have instead of trying to have what I consider to be uh, time-consuming arguments. But that said, I'm going to defend the fact that the Word of God teaches a pre-trib rapture. We have not been appointed unto wrath in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. There's a clear coming of Christ for His bride. He is not going to beat us up and put us through the tribulation. When I understand from reading the Word of God that the tribulation is about two things. One, it is about God finishing His business with unbelieving Israel. Secondly, it is about God dealing with the Gentile nations with regard to their refusal to accept Christ, number one, and how they treat the Jewish people from Joel chapter 2. 
I don't find the church in that mix. I don't find the church anywhere in the mix after Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, when John is told to come up here and I will show you the things which take place hereafter. Fifteen times the church appears in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation. It does not appear again until the 22nd chapter of the Revelation. Dr. Ron Rhodes, you want to comment on Dr. Gary Fraser's comments? I really like the emphasis on imminence and waiting for the Lord who could show up at any moment. In fact, Jan, one of my favorite verses is Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. To me, that's both eminence as well as the transformation of our bodies at the rapture. We're waiting for the Lord, and when the Lord shows up, our bodies are going to be transformed. That's a perfect description of the rapture, mm-hmm. and it could happen at any moment. The church is not in the mix of the tribulation, but the church is in the mix of being translated into glory at a moment that could come at any time. Another key verse here, that would be 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Ron, I think what's hanging up a number of people because of their theology, whatever it be, preterism, even amillennialism, they don't believe in a rapture. They believe in a second coming and only a second coming. And I think it's so important that you and I emphasize that everyone who has the opportunity emphasize there are two comings of the Lord Jesus, one in the clouds, which is the rapture. And I just read that passage from 1 Corinthians 15. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be caught up. But they only believe in the second coming when Christ comes at the end of the tribulation. That's right, and I think there's a lot of evidence in Scripture that points out the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. For one thing, every eye will see Jesus at the second coming, Revelation 1-7. But the rapture is never described as being visible to the whole world. We will instantly vanish, and there will be some people who will be seen to vanish, but the text does not say, as it says of the second coming, that every eye will see Jesus. Furthermore, the rapture is imminent. It could take place at any moment. Whereas the second coming is preceded by seven years worth of signs that are described in Revelation Mm -hmm. 4 through 18. We know that at the rapture, Jesus will come for his church, while at the second coming, Christ will come back to earth with his church, Revelation 19, 14. At the rapture, Christians meet Jesus in the air, but at the second coming, Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, verse 4. At the rapture, Christians are taken and unbelievers are left Mm -hmm. behind. But at the second coming, unbelievers are taken away in judgment, and mortal believers are remaining on the earth to enter into Christ's millennial kingdom. The fact is, there's a lot of differences between the two. I might also point out that, according to the passage you just read, the rapture will take place in the blink of an eye, whereas the second coming will be more drawn out. How do we know it's drawn out? Well, there's plenty of time for the Antichrist to gather his forces to do battle against the coming of Christ. That's going to take some time, whereas one is instant, the other is more drawn out. I think there's just an awful lot of scriptural evidence that these are two distinct events, with one taking place before the tribulation, the other after the tribulation. What do you say to those who say the first half of the tribulation will be relatively peaceful, 
Israel will be enjoying the security of the Antichrist, so to speak, first part of the tribulation, but then they extend that and say the first half is not going to be that bad. I disagree. I disagree, too. In fact, there are some that try to argue that the first half of the tribulation doesn't really even have the wrath of God, that it's only in the second half. That's right. That's what they say. But it's very clear that the wrath of God is falling from the beginning. For one thing, the Old Testament prophets would often describe the tribulation period as a whole, the entire seven-year period, as the day of God's wrath. So God's wrath characterizes the entire period. Furthermore, look at the seal judgments, which starts relatively early in the tribulation period. Those are all a manifestation of the wrath of God. After all, when Jesus unrolls each scroll, a new judgment is inflicted upon the world. Janet is true to say that the judgments go from bad to worse. But the bad ones are bad enough. Let me tell you, I wouldn't want to be there. Well put. Let me just touch on the people of the millennium. Just set the stage here and have you comment. If Jesus Christ were to come back after the tribulation and rapture all the saints and slay all the ungodly, the question has to be asked, who on earth would be left to populate the earth during the millennium? Only the pre-trib viewpoint can account for this post-trib problem. The church is raptured before the tribulation. A vast number of souls are saved during the seven-year time frame. And those who make it through the tribulation go into the millennium while the unsaved are cast into hell. So this is the problem of the millennium, which is begging the question that we've been asking here for almost an hour, how can there not be a pre-trib rapture? That is a tremendous problem for all the other viewpoints. Yeah. I've actually asked that question of post-tribs on live radio. Mm Mm-hmm. Jan, you know what dead air is, right? (laughs) Dead air is when you're doing a radio show and nobody's talking. (laughs) Every time I have asked that question to a post-trib, there's been dead air. Okay. Because you cannot answer it. The fact is, the sheep and the goats will be gathered before Christ at the second coming. And if there is a rapture at the second coming, the sheep have already been glorified. How can they possibly now face Christ for another gathering? They've already been gathered up Mm -hmm. to meet the Lord in the air. And that's not to even deal with the brothers. Who are the brothers? They can't answer that either. But from a pre-trib perspective, it makes great sense. The brothers are the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. The only people who will treat them kindly will be Christians who know God's plan. The fact is, is the sheep are judged and allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom, while unbelievers show their apostate state by treating the brothers badly. They enter into eternal punishment. To me, again, it fits together like pieces in a puzzle. I agree. Ron, the last year and a half, we've seen some incredible turmoil. We've seen America in rapid decline. We've seen globalism rising, and I often talk about the World Economic Forum on this platform here. We've seen Christians and conservatives marginalized and, dare I say, persecuted. We've seen government overreach included in that would be this whole mandatory vaccine effort, which is getting more heavy-handed literally by the day. We've just seen a number of things in the last year and a half or so. We've seen geopolitical instability by what's happened over the summer in the Middle East, more specifically Afghanistan, and how that's going to spread not only throughout the Middle East, the fallout from that tragic event that happened in August, but I think it's going to increase world terrorism literally around the world. Having said that, and I've only listed, I think, five bullet points here, what would you say to not only my listeners, but to pastors as they face a time of discouragement? 
and pastors have certainly gone through it with their churches shut down. That would much of 2020, they couldn't even congregate if they wanted to, and some didn't want to, but others certainly did. How do you encourage, number one, listeners, number two, pastors? I would encourage everyone to revive your commitment to understanding Bible prophecy, because Bible prophecy itself is an encouragement. The whole reason the book of Revelation was written was to give encouragement to those early Christians who were not just being persecuted, but even martyred. There's one thing that prophecy tells us. We win. Now, you've got to keep in mind, God does not just tell us the future to show off. He doesn't give us prophecy just to give us intellectual facts about eschatology. The fact is, prophecy is eminently practical because it is life-changing. If you truly believe in Bible prophecy, you not only understand that God is going to win, but that God has a purpose for the unfolding of human history as it is unfolding in our day. For example, we come to understand that much of the unrest in our world is causing many people to cry out for a world leader, a globalist leader, who will chart a clear path for the future. We start to understand that all of this is laying the groundwork for the future rise of the Antichrist. The more we understand prophecy, the more we accurately understand not just what's happening in our world, but why it's happening. And if you understand those things, it's going to change the way you live. It's going to cause you to live righteously and in purity as you wait for the bridegroom to come for the bride, which is his church. 